Welcome to The Big Deal with Glenn Ferris, episode 35. Today, I sit down with Josh Berthume. He's a guy you can generally describe as the smartest guy in the room. And fun story, I met Josh about a decade ago in Kevin Roden's living room. And we were gearing up for Kevin's very first city council campaign. And Josh gets up in front of everyone as the campaign manager and says, the odds are Kevin's going to lose and they're going to mop the floor with Kevin because no one knows who he is. No one cares who he is. And the average voting age is this and he's not going to win. And we all know how that turned out. Guy ended up winning and got to be a part of that. Had a great time with that. That was my entry into local politics. And I've been a big Josh fan ever since. So I've got an announcement to make. The third annual winter warmer is this Saturday up at Bearded Monk in Denton County Brewing Company. March 7th, it starts at noon. And what it is, it is a fundraiser hosted by Denton Evening Rotary benefiting Uptop, which is buying laptops for over 60 Denton ISD high school seniors headed to college. Tickets are $10. Show up, get a beer, get some food, listen to some music. Uh, Marathons and Unicorns is playing. Doug Burr's playing. I'll be up there with Doug. Uh, I think we're playing around three, but music's going to happen from noon till I think four-ish. It's a great hang. I'll be out there. Everyone will be out there. Everyone's invited. Show up. Support up top. Support getting laptops for Denton ISD high school seniors going to college. It's a great cause. Uh, it's uh, Denton Evening Rotary is a great club. So glad to be a part of what they're doing. And thank you for listening and liking and subscribing. Check us out on all the Spotify, all the Apple podcasts, all the overcasts, all of that stuff. Thank you so much. Tell your friends. And while you're telling your friends, go ahead and check out GlennFerrisCommercial.com on the interwebs. Check out what I'm up to on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All that is at Glenn Ferris. And now give it up for one of my favorite people in the world, Josh Berthume. Yeah, I did a, a weekly podcast um, in like 2006. Uh, called did they even have podcasts at that point it that was, was early it was basically it was like a weekly interview that we did and we called it like the mp3 show oh you yeah. know uh, yeah. and like it's not that podcast didn't exist or that we were first or anything but it was super early that was very early and there was no distribution network so you had to like host it go get a plug-in and do a player and like host it on your web server and all that sort of stuff and um i did interviews with uh um, like politicians, lawmakers, political consultants, uh, media people, like all around Texas. Yeah, and, and this this was when you were politically. Yeah, it was when I was I was like more specifically uh, working in politics, and it was for a political blog. Yeah, uh, called the Texas Blue that we did around here, and oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. and it was just we talked to people from around town. We talked to people from the state ledge. We talked to national politicians. You know, uh, and it was it was wild because it was a brand new media thing. So you'd call and kind of have to explain it. But the Internet was new enough <laughs> that people were like, oh, it's an Internet thing. 
okay, oh, it's a blog thing. And then it would just be like, okay, well, we'll, we'll do it because people were like, we got to get on the internet and figure it out. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, with, uh, with podcasts, it's, I tried this, uh, app over the weekend called anchor and it makes it extremely easy to record a podcast, to have guests, to do ad reads, to Hmm. make trailers, to drop in. They've got a huge sound library and it's all built in like on an app on your phone. It's actually much easier to do everything on your phone than it is to use the web interface. Oh, wow. And, uh, it's crazy to me, like how much easier it has gotten just in the last, you know, uh, 18 months. Right. There, I mean, and it automatically distributes it to every available podcast network. Ooh, yeah. I need to get plugged into that. <laughs> yeah. So it's neat. And you can sideload in uh, completed audio. So you don't have to do it through the app. Right. But that's what I would probably do. Mix it down and then throw it into the app and then have it plug in. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah no, yeah. there's a need for it. That's something that I've kind of realized going through this is like, there's got to be a streamlined way of workflow you know, and, uh, to get to like your end product. Cause that's where the, the hard part is the repetitive, making sure I've got my title formatted the same way right? as all of them and not knowing where to plug in what, when I upload it, like that's, and see, that was always the easy part for me because that was just digital communication stuff, yeah. right. That I've been doing since 98. Gotcha. So that part, the process, the editing, the mix down, like all that was sort of like a real pleasant, um, you know, it's, it was the process part that I enjoyed. Yeah. And then the hard part was conceiving of the interview and then like mastering myself as the interviewer Yeah, and trying to be a good host because like content creation is hard. It's hard work. It like the repetition of it is difficult just cause you enjoy it. Doesn't mean it's not time consuming or stressful or, or difficult as it is, but like the part that's, uh, that I think was always like the, the biggest challenge and sort of the biggest uh, hype thing for me was the, the hard part of being in the moment and like being present and being uh, um, it's really like you have to create almost like a psychic space for another person to exist in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's gotta be not about you is what I found. You gotta be outside of your head. Right. And uh, just letting things kind of happen and fall into place the way they, could naturally or should naturally, you know. So that's interesting. Did did you uh were were you trying to take apart not take apart, but like enter kind of the realm of like conservative talk radio when when you were doing that idea? Is this the way Democrats kind of get onto the airwaves in a way that conservatives did on radio? <laughs> or was so that the thought or what was it the idea was, behind that? It was, you know, the um uh, so Democrats had been getting uh, liberals, progressives, like anything like that. Half of the country, essentially, had been losing the media fight ever since Fox News had come around. Mm-hmm. And that plus talk radio, it was just a medium where that team had a distinct advantage. Um, and then when the Internet came up, <clears throat> it was sort of the realm of like, you know, nerds and uh up you know astonishingly late like i would hear from people that they thought the internet was a fad you know or that apps weren't really going to work out you know and this is not that people are dumb but it's just it's it's almost impossible to project yourself into the future with any sort of uh reasonable logic or any sort of position where you can be reasonably certain about how things are going to turn out 
and people, you know, you know, this having now been and operated in business for a while, you get surprised all the time because you assume things are going to go the way they used to go. And then they don't. Yeah. So at the very beginning of that, when right after the dot com boom uh, blew up and then fell apart, it, there was a lot of sort of shoegazing about like, well, what's the Internet going to do now? And it, well, how big is the impact on business really going to be? And um, this didn't work out in this one format. So clearly it's not going to be that big of a deal. But everything got cheaper. Internet connectivity got better. Uh, mobile devices started to get better. So people were more and more getting information about objective reality from a different source of information than had ever happened in the course of human history. You know, for a lot of the American century, uh, you had single or, you know, uh, close groups of choices where you could make where there's like a vetted source of information where I'm going to get the news about a thing. And it's going to be presented to me in a way where someone is going to do their best to be objective and just tell it like it is right. Cronkite is here to just say, here is what happened. Right. Then that's the, like the gatekeeper model. You've right. got the yeah, gatekeepers. It absolutely was. And it yeah. was, you know, uh, it was a, it was appointment television before that it was appointment radio. It was like, I'm going to get the source of this information <laughs> and, and, yeah. and I'll understand it or I'll read the paper. You know, it required uh, planning. It required time. It required effort. And, and before then, that, it was like the town crier walked into town and said, hear ye, hear ye. Right. But if you think about the Diana flow of information. Syphilis. Right. Yeah, that's all the news you needed. Right yeah. There, right? And it's, <laughs> it's not technically all that different. Right. Yeah. Here's our trusted source. Whatever they, whatever they say, we're going to buy it. Because, and this, you could get into a branding conversation here. Yeah. The brand identity of the town crier. <laughs> if he said the king is dead. Yeah. The last three times he said that. Yeah. The king was dead. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you believe it because it has been believable. Yeah. Um, you believed Cronkite because he would just say, here is what happened. And 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 that's it. Right. Right. And, we, and now we've got like a set based of facts that we can all agree on. Like I'm a town crier is not going to be wrong or Walter Cronkite. Right. Definitely put a guy on the moon. You're and, operating yeah. in what you could uh, not even charitably, but very reasonably describe as a shared reality. Yeah. Right. So then there was a tactical conversation happening in democratic politics um, in the aughts where some people recognized there was an opportunity to um, create, to, to operate in a new space where you did not have to try and compete with conservative talk radio, which was a monster and commanded huge audiences and you know, represents a huge chunk of like why the terrestrial radio business model still works. Um, and you didn't have to um, spin up something like Fox News with the sort of the same kind of reach uh, and, and persistence that it had. You could, uh, if the left could figure out the Internet and really master it, then you could get new voters, you could get young voters. Um, you assumed that older voters and Americans were going to get involved in it. But it was a way to overcome the two biggest problems that a lot of, um, you know, liberal, uh, I guess, media outlets had at the time, which was um, you could build a new audience without having to overcome like a huge established audience. Otherwise, like it was a real path for building a real audience. And part of the reason why it was a real path for building a real audience is because uh, 
um, it it flattened the uh, the playing field and the barrier to entry was a lot lower. You didn't have to buy a TV station to be able to reach a million people. Right. Right. Any kid can get on the Internet and say whatever you wanted. And therein lies one of the problems. Right. (laughs) In that uh, at the same time where it's like, hey, there's this free. And I was an Internet utopian for the longest time. I was just like, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be uh, this free and open flow of ideas. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're going to have the Arab Spring. Yeah. You know, all of this stuff is going to work <laughs> yeah. really well. And um, I was I was uh, I don't want to say that I was I was less cynical then, but it did not occur to me. Uh, well, I couldn't project myself into the future and see how it would turn out. Exactly. Yeah. So, yes, there was an idea of let's figure this out. And, and if you remember, do you remember Air America? Oh, yeah, totally. I was about to bring that up as like the left trying to enter that airspace. Right. And that, and that was kind of the big idea. It was yeah. like, this is going to work. Yeah. And it didn't work. Yeah. Gene Garofalo was like pretty involved in it. Yeah, right? Mark Maron yeah. was Mark too. Mark Maron was know? in. Yeah. Uh, Sam right. Cedar was mm-hmm. on it too. And, you know, and they all like, they're fine. Like they went and did other things. Mark yeah. Maron uh, essentially became the gold standard for what a uh, pop culture podcast should look like. Yeah. Um, so like all that turned out okay for them. But the, the concept of Air America didn't work because of resources and audience. It was it was it was it was too hard for some reason, and I don't pretend to know exactly why it didn't work out. But it just that that attempt, as uh, as as good as it was, as earnest as it was, as well intentioned as it was, didn't work out. But like the Daily Show probably wouldn't have happened without Air America, right? Am I am I kind of putting that in the same category? I mean, not category, but like uh, I think there's there is a, there's an overlapping inheritance of of elements of sort of like left or liberal thinking in the United States in terms of media. Yeah. Where like one begets the other begets the other. Yeah. You know, like one of the best um, ways for people that are not entirely super 100% in the bag for a conservative viewpoint. Um, one of the best uh, places for someone to uh, understand a complex issue and to get a long thoroughly reported readout of a, of a complicated issue that's that's happening in America or the world um, is uh, last week tonight with John Oliver. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because it's funny and it's vulgar, but they report the hell out of those stories. He'll spend 10 minutes on one. Right. One thing. And, and, yeah. and it's very intentional. Like they're going to do mm-hmm. one show a week and they're going to have a little like, here's the update of what just happened. But then here is 10 to 12 minutes that explains to you things like prescription drug prices yeah, or the one child policy in China or like, you know, like really difficult things that they do a hell of a good job explaining that doesn't exist without the daily show. Yeah. Which probably doesn't exist without someone saying, Hey, there might be an audience for comedy with a liberal viewpoint um, from the time that it started with air America and air America probably doesn't have a space to exist um, and I'm, and it pains me to say this, but without a show like politically incorrect, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it's very funny to me that conservatives think that Bill Maher is like this liberal hero. <laughs> he is not. No, you should watch the show sometime. <laughs> yeah. And no, he's pretty hard on both sides. Right. And, and it's this sort of like <laughs> smug, like from a place of bad faith, intellectually dishonest, like I'm going to be hard on both sides and. Like there's yeah. there's a lot about his approach to things that that I think is problematic, but 
the he just by virtue of having that show in the late 90s created some space for any kind of progressive political idea been around that long i think so oh yeah i think and i could be someone is going to fact check me on that but i think it was yeah. the late 90s yeah wow man that's crazy um and that was when it was on network mm-hmm. and they would have very interesting guests from very ver- various viewpoint like he i will say this like he does have a broad spectrum of people come on that talk about things and they are people are candid with each other in that environment but until that point you know there wasn't really a place in sort of popular or comedy culture um, in entertainment in the entertainment space as it is uh, when they were talking about contemporary political issues or, or policy things or whatever it was um, for really like for, for, uh, for progressive ideas to be presented um, you know, you could, and the people will argue with me about that on the way down, but that, in the space that it existed pre-internet, like pre-podcast, pre-YouTube, all that sort of stuff, that was a unique thing that created space for something like Air America, that created space for something like The Daily Show that yeah. created. So all of that happened. All the way back to your original question, was this an idea in democratic politics of like, let's win the internet or get there first? It absolutely was. Uh, we lost. Yeah. No, and that, that that's what I kind of want to roll back to is like, in a world where there's no agreed upon reality, which is what we're living in now, and there's no way to get that cat back in the bag. <laughs> How do we move forward? I don't necessarily agree that there's no way to get that cat back in the bag. Well, that, yeah, that's what I want to hear about. Cause I mean, <laughs> there are a couple of places I go to now, like I'm kind of, this is where I'm at. I think a lot of people are at, or I'm kind of done with uh, the news. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I'm okay without the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm better off watching like, in-depth documentaries about what happened like years ago like right. i feel like i get more reality from that and it's like that that's uh, we can all agree that that's what happened at that time but as it comes to me real time i'm like eh, i don't know about that uh so i'm kind of like i can't spend time doing that anymore because it's it's not healthy for me to be reactive about stuff that's maybe 50 percent correct well and this is part of the goal a it's part of the goal of uh, disinformation and propaganda and computational propaganda. Yeah. Like if a foreign intelligence agency wanted to uh, disrupt the normal proceedings of a society, then they, f- they engage in this fire hose effect and, yeah, and fill the airwaves it. with crap. And that's not, yeah. you know, that's not mm-hmm. the news that you watch at night, but that has an effect on because they interfere with algorithms and they push things into yeah. the zeitgeist like that has an effect on what gets discussed. Or if the news is reporting on someone said this and that right. was, yeah. Right. And, you know, uh, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of Fox News, but you cannot argue with its success. Right. It, it, it in its goal of of pushing a viewpoint and influencing policy uh, over the last 30 years and essentially operating. Uh, and, you you know, I see people now talk about it as like a, a state media machine, but you can't really call it that because oftentimes, depending on who is in the White House, it's opposed to whoever's there, right? Like, it's almost like a totally independent media thing. Yeah. Um, it's been very, uh, it's, it's been very effective in the goal of we're going to push a viewpoint out into the world and try to affect how people, uh, judge objective reality. Like we want to present a lens through which everyone views everything that the unintended consequence of that, of the polarization and of the, 
um, representation of political identity as you have to pick a team is that people become disengaged. It The long-term effect of uh, a huge megaphone like that pushing that information out into the world in the way that they do um, is that it is that it is it, it engages in uh, or it creates voter suppression. It creates like a reality warping field and uh, and a, uh, a a suppression field where people don't even want to be engaged with reality at all because, you know, everything is either a lie or a truth or someone's yelling at me constantly. So I would just rather not deal. I would rather not watch the news. Yeah, well, it's it's not that I'd rather not, but it, it's like time is a limited resource for me, for all of us. Right. If I'm going to spend time doing something, then it, it becomes not worth it for me to spend time engaging. You right. know, not that I'm not going to vote. I'm going to, you know, do my best to vote the, the best I can. Right. But someone who, say, for most of their life has read the news, has watched the news, has been interested in it. Yeah. If you find yourself in a space now where you are not. Yeah. Like that's the first stage. <laughs> right. Of reality apathy, which yeah. is a, a state uh, that it's sort of like recently been coined by, um, oh God, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head. He's an MIT uh, psychologist, um, and he talked about this. And I'll send you the link, and we can put it in the show notes. I'm going to search it. Real quick. Um, yeah, um, just look up reality apathy. Uh, that top one. Early Warzlo. Uh, no, that's the writer. Uh, uh, Ovadia. Yeah, Ovadia. Yeah, Ovadia. There we go. <clears throat> so he he was early out of the gate and talking about like what might happen in the 2016 election cycle with um, like foreign interference and and uh, computational propaganda and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but he describes a state in there uh, called reality apathy, which is people get so burnt out on being bombarded from all sides with conflicting depictions of reality that they stop caring. Right. And people who stop caring are more likely to be swayed by like the, the little thing that comes across the bow that makes them vote one way or the other. Right. Um, if Maybe? they, if Could they are, be the, if their vote is not entirely suppressed, mm -hmm. then possibly, I think people have an unrealistic, uh, picture of that there is this huge chunk of 20% of the polity that are persuadable voters and that there's one issue or news item in the last two weeks before the election that's going to change their whole worldview. I don't really think that's how it works. I could be wrong. Um, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of study and reports about how the American polity works now in the era that we live in. I think that the team identity thing where you are saying, most most political communication now in what is absolutely a hyperpolarized environment, uh, and uh, I'm the last person that wants to engage in both sidesism, but I will say that um, both Democratic and Republican uh, campaigns engage in this behavior where uh, things are not necessarily argued on the merits, and you know, a lot of Democratic strategists would say, "Well, there's no benefit to arguing something on the merits because we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna lose." When somebody shows up and says, "Well, you guys are murdering Satanists," yeah. and I'm not interested in talking about policy from you because where we start from is that you should all, you know, yeah. be in jail or yeah. <laughs> what you know, whatever it is. And there there might be some merit to that argument. There might not be. American political communication has truly boiled down to now: what team are you on? 
Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's sports for people who don't like baseball or football. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And to varying degrees, people engage in that sort of thinking all the way down to whatever it is that agrees with my team or makes my team look good. I will I will say that it is true, even if I don't necessarily believe that it is true, because yeah, I'm rooting for the because I'm rooting for the team, right? Yeah, for the team. And yeah. there's actually, you know, that you say now that you say that there is a lot of similarity in, you know, a, a team. Let's say there's a baseball team that gets exposed for engaging in certain unsavory <laughs> behavior. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you if can you're see, an Astros fan. You're if you're gonna, an Astros fan, then it's like everybody yeah. does it and yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter it doesn't or matter. you can't yeah. prove it or whatever it is. Yeah. But if you're not an Astros fan, then it's like the worst should, thing ever. Put those people in jail. We, like those, we, yeah. Take we, their at the title least from them, we yeah. should take the title from them. And, right. And so when I started thinking about this, like really deeply, it was around the time of uh, the, the Kavanaugh hearings. Like, and I mean, I was going to board meetings where it was like people who were previous friends were like just jumping down each other's throats, trying to get some, their little pet issue or whatever. It's like, Hey, 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 slow down. This is not a, (laughs) a hearing for Supreme court justice, you know, right? Like people were bringing the, the reality of what was happening in DC down to like, you know, the board level in here in Denton. And it was like, and that really made me start think like, uh, about like the tribalism that was occurring and how, Man, it's just about whose team are you on, you right? Know? And, and and like so, and also it's it's hard to have a discussion about like the you know back to the metaphor like well should this sort of cheating be allowed or should it not? What's the future of of baseball if we allow this sort of cheating? That's not a discussion when it's this team versus this team. You know, you can't really even have a a discussion that moves the ball down the field. You well, know? yeah. And, and part of that is, you know, there has been a, a, in, in terms of communications, there has been uh, a strategy um, in conservative politics for a long time to you, to, to, to outline and determine what the playing field is. So like take the second amendment, for instance, <clears throat> every time, that's the gun one, right? That's the yes, that's okay. the gun one. Uh, every time Democrats try to have an argument about let's have red flag laws, let's have background checks, you need a license to drive a car, why shouldn't you need a license like to own a gun? Reasonable All arguments. The, right, yeah, like very not, reasonable. Not yeah. I'm kind of come to your house and and steal your weapons and beat you with them, but just let's think about it from a policy standpoint. The conservative starting point is if you try to take my guns, which is what you are trying to do, that we will have a civil war. Yeah. Right? And that's not I would, I would, and I, I'm not attributing that to a particular politician, but you don't have to dig very down, far down into YouTube to find something that has a million views where like, that's the position. Right. right. And then you, anytime anyone picks up a, a conversation about that in an August debating chamber about policy, like in the Senate, it's always about like, they're stealing from us. They're taking from us. So that's, that's where they pin the beginning of the argument, right? Like the begin, like where we start from is any ground we give up is sacred and you are assaulting what the founders imagined for this country if we if we change anything but that happens both on the like internally on the right as well like right now we've got a primary uh that plays off on in the third when the right is trying to outdo the right man it goes pretty crazy oh yeah no and that and this is the thing and you now are seeing a lot of stuff that cropped up in 2016 that we started studying and we were worried about is now playing out in full on both sides in terms of both like polarized arguments that don't make any sense and 
absolute uh, disinformation, like like levying it against each other when you're on the same team. Um, on the right, you know, when someone runs against someone who is reliably like red meat Tea Party conservative, and then they'll have a primary challenger. <laughs> Almost never is it someone who's a centrist who's like, guys, let's chill out and let's be a little more reasonable and try and get things done. Yeah, never. It's always somebody who is like, I'm to the right of Attila the Hun. Yeah. And this is this is where yeah. we're going to start from is that, <laughs> yeah. you know, you are secretly a Democrat because you're a communist. In yeah, fact. because you're a communist because you didn't hunt enough or whatever it is like that gets real hard. And, you know, Democrats have that problem, too, where constantly it's like you're not liberal enough or the because Bernie is doing well uh, in the primary right now. The argument is you're too liberal. Yeah. You know, and like I am not uh, a Bernard brother, but like I was. I was actually, I saw in a thread yesterday where, a, 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 and this was just, you know, I, I have to spend a lot of time by the nature of my work reading the comments. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. I don't like doing, but like well, you have to do. It's a, it's a great way to get inside people's heads. There's less filter there, you know? <laughs> like this is what people really feel. For better or worse. In the like it's dark of night they're when just, they're all yeah, alone because typing they can, on their keyboard. They can say know? whatever they want to on the internet. Yeah. And there was one... Uh, there was one Republican in a thread where somebody basically somebody said, Hey, this thing about Bernie Sanders is going to tax people, um, that make $29,000 a year at 54% is just not true. Totally. Oh, I saw that there was, it was a screenshot was y'all should do the math. And it's right. like, ah, but that's not what he said. Yeah. That, a, yeah. that's not what he said. And B, that is not at all what the math says. Right. Yeah. Very like, if you just. Both of those things, like, what's your source? It's him, you know? Like, <laughs> he said these things. <laughs> yeah. So one comment in this thread was, well, maybe with his four houses and his Lamborghini, Bernie will show everyone what it means to be a real socialist. And, like, I couldn't help myself. And I was just like, my guy, do you think Bernard Sanders owns a Lamborghini? <laughs> and he's like, absolutely he does. Probably he had to a sell Subaru. His, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's like, Probably say what you will about the guy, but it's almost certainly like, yeah, a, yeah he's like a, the 80s Vermont Volvo guy. and the brown one yeah, with the yeah. logo track he's used twice. It's got the two million mile <laughs> badge on or whatever. Like, fine. Like, you can d agree or disagree about his policies, but if there's like one thing that is politically unimaginable to me, it is Bernie Sanders Bernie tearing ass around yeah. in a Lamborghini, right? Yeah. So that's that. But then there's another part of the thread where uh, there was a Democrat who was like, well, he is uh, Maoist. And if he is the nominee, then we are going to lose every single down ballot race and we're going to lose the House. Uh, and and it is going to be utter destruction. And there's no way he can win the general. Now, these are the same sorts of like very reasonable, like older Democrats in the party who go to the polls to make the argument of like, look what the polls say. And whether you voted for Bernie or not in a huge number of general election, big national polls, which if you use those as part of your argument, then you got to use them for all the arguments. I don't <laughs> think that they say much or tell you much in a primary, especially not in the political environment we work in now. But if that's something that you have traditionally used as a measure for the viability of a candidate in a general election, he does just as well, if not better than all the centrists in the race. Yeah. And, and just as often as anyone else ends up beating Trump in the general election. Yeah. So, and what you get in that is this sort of sinking, uh, and I don't want to say like, you know, Matryoshka, like Russian doll syndrome, but uh, it's these overlapping sort of concentric circles of, you know, people that are on Twitter that are extremely online and are doing politics on Twitter constantly think that that is the American polity. Oh, yeah. And I mean, we've got <laughs> certain cities 
that track Facebook and Twitter comments right. and react to those. And it's like, hey, that is not the that's not a cross section of of people's beliefs or wants or needs or right. complaints. Now, the Internet Utopian in me says, what a great way for citizens and constituents to have a direct access to their elected officials, to the city, to be like, I'm, let me give you feedback on a thing. Here's an experience I had. Yeah. It removes a lot of friction and lowers the barrier to entry to actively participating in civil society, yeah. right? Yeah. But... Which seems nice and good. <laughs> but is that what we want? Do seems we want nice that? and good. And, I, you know, I would make the argument that that is what we want. Okay. In... But at what cost? I mean, the, 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 it's a cost analysis now. See, you know? Yeah, I, and again, like still the, the utopian in me. Like, I wrote a, a story for Texas Observer in 2009 um, about how uh, Republicans in Texas were learning to use the Internet more effectively than uh, than Democrats. And they hadn't quite figured it out yet, but there were Republican consultants who talked to me for that when I wrote that piece that were like, this could be the new talk radio. Mm -hmm. Like not, we're going to use this to overcome the deficit we're experiencing in a place like talk radio or on cable news. But this is going to be a force amplifier Mm -hmm. for what we're capable of doing on talk radio. And, um, you know, and there was like some really nice examples, you know, like Michael Williams was the railroad commissioner back then. And he would answer policy questions, but he only had like 2,500 Twitter followers, right? This was the early, early, like 2009, early days of, of Twitter. So it wasn't nearly as crazy as it was. I think that Rick Perry, who was then governor of Texas, had 9,000 Twitter followers. And he would be like, I'm here at the Aggie baseball game and I'm super pumped and, you know, this is fun. I don't even think you could maybe even put pictures on Twitter back then. So it was just him Twitter talking pick. about where it was. Yeah, yeah. Twitpick, right? That <laughs> Twitpick. Was, that, you had to do it on another thing and then post a link to it. Um, and, you know, he described himself as a real tweet head. And, you know, he was like he would do a lot of the tweets himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and during the session, because I wrote that in uh, May of 2009, there was a session going on, uh, you know, a lot of. Um, uh, Democratic lawmakers were just talking about like, well, I went to my favorite taco place today and uh, really enjoyed that. And now we're getting ready to go vote on this bill or whatever it was. And it was this like early days. Hey, like this is a cool opportunity for people to have access to their elected officials and for elected officials to welcome people into their sloppy realities and be like, hey, I'm I'm falling asleep because we're having a late night debate on a thing. So I'm watching YouTube videos and it's fun and you guys should watch this or, you know, whatever it is. But is, um, the, is the danger in that, though, not having someone to vet the information that's coming from the person? Because then it becomes <laughs> people are reactionary. You've got entire countries reacting to a tweet. Now. Yeah. Well, and this was before. Maybe not the best situation. This was before Twitter became what it is. Mm-hmm. Right. So now you deal with the very real problem of disinformation, not not only uh, being spread by official sources but originating from official sources absolutely and that is a big problem big problem Uh, (laughs) maybe our biggest but like back to the original thing like can that cat bit get put back into that bag i mean i don't i think this is the world we live in for i need more wine yeah oh thank you for the boda box where uh sponsored by red volution red volution the, the surprisingly good wine in a box um, so I, all right. So the business, my day job is I run an advertising agency right here in Denton, Texas called Swash Labs. Yeah. And full disclosure, 
you're my client. Yeah. Right. Um, you're an awesome client. Yeah, you are an awesome <laughs> client. Um, and the, the goal of that, when we started it in 2010, um, I had a real messed up skill set coming out of grad school because I had worked as a digital creative for uh, since the late 90s, I had worked in putting stuff on the Internet and trying to get people to look at it uh, since before Google existed. But I also had two political science degrees, one of them with a focus on behavioral economics. And I had spent several years um, working as an open source intelligence analyst for a company in London called Exclusive Analysis. And I, as part of that job, tracked violent and terrorism risk uh, in Western Europe and the United States. And some of that work involved tracking how uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS used the Internet to recruit and... uh, uh, and and radicalize people, right? And that not not just them specifically, but all kinds of groups, all kinds of people doing bad guy shit on the internet. So you saw all that, yeah. And you still had a positive outlook on what the internet could be. <laughs> what can I say? I'm an optimist. No, but that's I mean that really yeah. puts it into like you've seen the extreme, but still you have a, a optimistic outlook on it. Well, um, and, and and that just frames kind of your position a little better, it, I think. It, yeah. Experience, yeah. And like I got to that I got to the point where I got done with grad school in which I had studied um, you know, like how states and uh transnational terrorist organizations make decisions in terms of um how they strategically move against each other and and like what that uh decision uh economy looks like. And I found myself with this skill set of I can look at big data sets and I can understand why people do what they do. Or I can at least, to the best of my ability, make an educated guess. Uh, I understand the Internet. Uh, I am like from the Internet, so I understand uh, You're Im- native. implicitly how people can use the Internet for good and bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was right after, uh, you know, the last sort of lead that Democrats had on the internet was 2012. The one right before that was, was 2008 when Obama like used big data, uh, before there were really a lot of tools in place to make it easy at the platform level to do it. Like they really figured out how to use the internet to target communications and reach people and use it effectively yeah. for both acquisition, um, and persuasion. Right. And that meaning uh, acquisition is I'm bringing people into my audience and saying, Hey, here's a space where you can get information and I can tell you my story and all these sorts of things. And then persuasion is I'd like you to do this thing, whether it's volunteer or donate or do whatever it is like that had never really been done on the Internet before at that at that scale. They did it successfully. They did a sort of more powerful version of that in 2012. And that was kind of the last time Democrats had to lead in anything. But the the world as it existed in 2010 was the whole dot com hangover was fully well and over since then. And Obama's campaign had a lot to do with that. Um, the rise of Facebook, the rise of Twitter, like sort of um, MySpace, even still like at these times, like they had these huge audiences. So Harvard Business Review, CNBC, you know, uh, the Fox Business, like all these outlets were regularly putting stories out in which they talked about the 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 unbelievable necessity of having your business be online and uh, understanding the Internet as a part of your business model and your brand identity. I had spent five years studying terrorism and that became a real bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, and I wanted to get back to telling stories and cause that's at my core, like what I have always been most interested in is storytelling. Yeah. So I started an ad agency and the goal of Swash Labs from the beginning was, can we 
make available to small businesses and nonprofits because again, the internet has flattened so much of the world in terms of communications. Can we make a world-class like coastal ad agency experience available to small businesses and nonprofits that it otherwise would not be available to because they can't afford a $25 million TV buy. Mm-hmm. Right. So the thinking there was we can make much more targeted, much more efficient ad buys on digital. And that's only gotten more possible as those tools have gotten better over time. Um, and it, in that, in that set of thinking, can we take that space and really like power up small businesses and make it possible for them to compete against businesses that have much, much bigger uh, sets of resources than they do. So that's always been the goal from the beginning. uh, And I feel like we have accomplished that. But when we started, so much of our work was education because we were in the mode of having to sort of explain the internet to people. Yeah. Like, and the platforms didn't make it really easy to explain themselves back then. They still don't. Um, it's a little bit easier to sort of understand how Facebook and Google works now, just because they've been around for so long and they're such an integral part of people's lives. They have a lived experience now of, I searched for something on Amazon and now I'm getting ads for it on Instagram. Exactly. So I can look at someone and say, that's remarketing. Yeah. Right. Usually it's a gross, uh, like shotgun, like victory through force of arms version of that. And we will like to do a much more subtle, like less yelly version of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's the 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 guts of how it works. Now, um, we are moving into kind of a new space with with Swash, where like that's still what we're doing, and brand identity and brand storytelling, and and have and introducing a concept to someone and making it possible for them to buy a product or engage in a service or. Uh, join a cause or you know we work with political campaigns so it's like how how to make it possible to engage with the campaign all that stuff is part of what we're doing but because of my background and my skill set after 2016 i like i had inklings like oh boy you could use this for bad guy stuff you could do black hat things you can manipulate seo you can play algorithmical games and essentially tell lies for fun and profit on the internet yeah and then you saw it in practice and then I saw it in like yeah. in practice at a much greater scale and for much more sinister purpose than I had originally imagined was possible. So since 2016, uh, I have I have spent a lot of time thinking about cognitive bias, which is part of behavioral economics and like how people make decisions, how people judge risk, how people um, understand probability. Um, well, explain that a little bit. Cognitive bias. So, cognitive bias is an element of of psychology that examines how the brain is hardwired to make mistakes. So, for instance, uh, there's a heuristic involved in, described by cognitive bias, uh, called availability. And availability says that it is easier for you to envision a vivid, emotionally charged story that you have familiarity with than a rote statistic. And then that makes it that you are more likely to be afraid of stuff uh, that is that you can vividly imagine, even though it is statistically much less likely to happen to you. So for instance, people are afraid of dying in plane crashes. And like I fly with my my kid and, you know, she 
has been super chill with it forever but now she's gotten like she's nine so she has existential <laughs> dread sometimes you know and she's like oh there's turbulence you know we might die so then yeah, i'm just this might be the one right so <laughs> i'm walking through the statistics of like hey, you know gonna happen yeah and, right but there's not a good way to explain it because then you have to be like well it's much more dangerous to ride around in a car and you do that all the time and you can't say yeah, that because then you're it's afraid, like, of afraid of riding being in a car yeah. <laughs> but people are afraid uh much more afraid of dying in a plane crash than they are of dying of uh diabetes or falling off a ladder in the garage yeah or a heart attack which is the most common thing but, right right and that's because they've got the story of like a fiery plane right. crashing because every time somebody dies falling off a ladder in the garage there's not three days of news coverage about it that's and right. like yeah. a government agency coming in and examining what happened with the ladder and all that sort of stuff so that's that's availability okay so cognitive is like it's in my brain already there's an implant of like some story and now i'm going to trend toward being afraid of airplanes and not heart attacks because right i've got this implant of like and it's because like these things have a have have evolved and there's a lot of heuristics that are built into that and i'll tell you about my second favorite one here in a second um because the human brain has had to evolve to deal with so much input and to deal with it analytically that it creates shortcuts yeah automatically so for instance there's another uh of availability uh it's not availability it's another heuristic and it's sort of commonly referred to as the gambler's fallacy which is if you get a bunch of college students in a room and you say all right here's a coin heads tails if i flip this coin 10 times and it's heads every single time what is the probability is it more likely to be heads or tails on the 11th throw? It's not. It's still right. uh, one out of two. But people think, oh, right. there's a pattern here. Right. And they, and they, yeah. they think like, oh, well, it's due to be tails. Uh, yeah, that's another way to look at it. Yeah, <laughs> but like it's not at all. Hitting the slot machine and it hasn't hit for a while. And this it's is, like, oh, this uh, is why casino odds are going up. Right. Every time I lose. <laughs> nope. Actually, they're not. Yeah. And, you know, a slot statistics machine, is a hell of a. <laughs> yeah. And and, <laughs> that, and the thing about it is that there's. People use statistics to lie all the time, but in simple terms, like statistics are what they are. Numbers are what they are. Yeah. Right. So that cognitively works out to people being able to properly judge probability or being able to uh, understand the difference between uh, a story that someone that they trust tells them and a story that a stranger tells them. Right. Even if this story that someone you trust has told you is much more fantastical and like wild, you're much more inclined to believe that even if someone over here is like there was a stop sign and like this very simple, rational set of things happened. But you don't trust them. Yeah. You don't know them. Yeah. Right. Your brain builds pathways. Your brain builds shortcuts. So that sits at the bottom of why people can get away with and can be so successful at lying on the internet because they take advantage of essentially like just how the human brain is wired. So how did the transition kind of happen for you going from swash into thinking about this deeply? And then eventually we haven't really mentioned it, but the Truman foundation, uh, which, which are deeply involved with right now, like how did that, how did that click and how did that formation happen? Well, we, so we've worked, uh, on political campaigns for a long time. Uh, we have always from the beginning, um, told our clients, like, listen, like, we are not going to lie on your behalf because the kind of advertising <laughs> that we do only works if it's true. Like, it amplifies what is true because it's built on the idea of 
brand trust and a brand like identity and someone's personal lived experience with whatever it is that they have, whether it's your service or your product or whatever it is. So like it's we can't work with people that don't care if their product works or is quality or not. We just can't because it doesn't work. And we and right up front, we're like, we're yeah. not going to do that. We're not going to do bad guy stuff on the Internet. Telling the truth is a really, really big deal right now. Yes. Like and, a really big deal. And that's been a, like <laughs> a number one for us from the beginning. Like yeah. we are not going to lie on the Internet and we're not going to cheat. And certainly uh, there is a benefit to cheating. Certainly there you can uh, make more money if you game the system. But for all of the difficulties that come along with running a small business, like not once have I ever not been able to go to sleep at night because of how I have done business. Right. Right. Yeah. That's important. That's, like, yeah, I want to tell true stories about the people that we work for and we, we work for people we believe in. So when we got through 2016, um, we saw that now sort of everything that we're built against in terms of how to use the internet, uh, was not just being sort of writ large and used to reshape the world. And you can make the argument, and and I'm not making this argument about one particular uh, candidate or thing or anything uh, in general, because I think it's it happens across a broad enough spectrum so that it is a big problem everywhere. So, like, you know, does the GRU use the Internet to destabilize other countries and wage asymmetric warfare? Yes. Yeah. Do campaigns on both sides use the Internet? Um, to do bad guy shit and campaigns and tell lies and spread disinformation. Yes, that that is enough to begin the conversation of uh, what do we do with that, right? Um, so then we then I really started thinking about okay, so this I know this has an effect in politics. It absolutely suppresses votes. It absolutely interferes with whatever side you're on. The basic idea of what the democratic process is, how it's supposed to work. But it also has a really severe effect in business. You know, movies have bombed because they have been artificially (laughs) tanked on review sites by, you know, men's rights activists that are upset that there's a female that gets to make decisions or is the hero in a story or whatever. Right. Um, People gin up. I've never thought about that, but that's completely true. Yeah, it's completely true. And it happens all the time now. Yeah. Um, So it's a huge business risk. Like I'm talking like billions of dollars a year are at stake. Yeah, because that meme goes out there and it spreads if it's like hot, if it's spicy, people feed on it. Like Cats is is an example for me because actually the bad reviews from Cats made me actually go see it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a tiny part of me that thinks that Cats might actually have, have benefited a little bit. From like Just how like, wild <laughs> all of the yeah. internet conversation was yeah, about that it. Rolling Stone review. I read it out loud to yeah. the family at Christmas. Yeah. And it was an event. Like, <laughs> like if it had only been like mostly bad and not so over the top ridiculous. Oh, it was so funny. Yeah. yeah. I think it would have, I would not have performed as well as it did in but, terms of revenue. Right. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> but that, that's an example of a thing like this was genuinely bad and it like kind of did yeah, the thing. Yeah. Um, this is everything from, uh, white nationalists uh, ginning up like protests in front of businesses that they have just deemed are mad, so they engage in a swarm attack against a, a a small business in some remote town because somebody got on the YouTube and said something bad about white nationalists. I guess there's a lot of bad things to say about them. Yeah. Um, all of that plays into this. Like now, there's a capability for anyone to gin up a 
disinformation attack against a business, a candidate, a campaign, whatever it is. There's a person, a like, person, yeah, an yeah, individual, yeah, yeah. which yeah. absolutely happens. There's no cost, yeah, uh, in terms of risk of doing it because I, I, there may have been someone who has been prosecuted or faced some actual penalty for this, but I don't, yeah, as of yet, I don't, I don't well, think well, that's true. Well, the one that comes to mind is like there was that woman who took an Ambien before getting onto a flight, tweeted something. And by the time she landed in Europe, like didn't have a job and had been completely torched. That is that was not someone <laughs> ginning up a disinformation. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, she, her, yeah, that, I guess that was. You want to talk about hoisted on your own petard? Ambient like, caused. I'm throwing. I want everyone to know that I'm throwing finger quotes around ambient caused. Because basically, she tweeted something horrifically racist before she got on a flight to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> good point yeah good point. yeah and then the internet sometimes there Did is a version the internet does. there's sometimes there's yeah. a version of internet justice uh that that seems yeah. to make a little bit of sense there's a there's a sort of a saying that i see more and more on twitter now and it's like twitter is a game and the goal of twitter is to not be the starring character on twitter that day <laughs> yeah do not trend <laughs> you do not want to want to trend yeah you don't want to be the thing so there's there's uh, for for engaging in that kind of activity against someone for ginning up a disinformation campaign against a person, a campaign, a business, a nonprofit, whatever it is, a show, you know, whatever the hell. Um, there's no cost. You don't need a high level of technological skill. Uh, you don't need a ton of money. You know, an example of, of what the GRU is capable of doing is that in the 2016 election cycle um, in Houston, there were two uh, there were two Facebook groups that were focused on Texas and one was like, Texas is going to secede and we're going to protect Texas values or whatever it is. It was like a tea party, like hard right group. And, and, and there was another page which was uh, sort of posted up as like a liberal group, a progressive group because they played both sides, right? Because you seed and build an audience and then you feed them disinformation after they trust you. Same sort of thing. They, they created two Facebook events. One was the stop the Islamification of Texas rally. And that was the hard right group. And then, of course, and yeah. then the other one was oh, the protect yeah. Islamic values and ideals. Of course. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Makes they perfect. scheduled them for so. the same time on the same day <laughs> in the same parking lot outside oh. of uh, an Islamic uh, center in Houston. Oh, wow. And they spent $100 promoting each event. It'd be funny if it wasn't real. Yeah, it was absolutely <laughs> real. So for $200, they almost caused a riot. Yeah. In from Not, from seven thousand miles away, as far as bang for the buck, yeah. So Not it's bad. it's super cheap. You don't need to be very technologically proficient to be able to do it, uh, and there's literally no consequences for doing it. Yeah. So when we started Swatch Labs in 2010, we thought like, what is going to be the thing that governs the next ten years of of business communication? And it was clearly going to be the internet, and clearly underneath that, it was going to be social media. Now that we're nine years, almost 10 years into Swash Labs, when I look at the next 10 years, it's only disinformation. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And it's not even as bad as it is going to get. Oh, yeah. We're <laughs> not even tip of the iceberg. Yeah, we're, like it, a... it evolves really radically every 30 days. Yeah. Uh, deep fakes and deep audio fakes are coming, which is videos where... Aren't you excited about November, though, because of this? I mean, like we have the... 
we have the test tube that the virus has been i mean there's a part of me that i suppose is like the guy at the end of the godzilla movie that's yeah. like let them fight you know like sure i want to see giant kaiju beat the hell out of each other and just see how yeah, it turns out but as happens. someone who has to exist and we society, have to live in it yeah. yeah i'm not super pumped about it yeah, because got the consequences this isn't this isn't just about like one election or one business or one brand this is the real actual fabric of society in reality i mean Just, yeah, yeah like people's yeah. ability to objectively understand yeah. reality i think everyone regardless of whatever political affiliation you have everyone knows someone who has said out loud to you something that you know is a lie and they believe it to be true <laughs> yeah it's like everyone every, has someone like that every thanksgiving and christmas <laughs> yeah right and like there's sort of jokes about like here you're gonna go home to thanksgiving and you're gonna do this uh you're going to do this thing where you're going to argue about your political standings and stuff like that. And, you know, certainly like I have to separate myself because I am absolutely a hardcore progressive. I am probably the most liberal person that a lot of people that know me, like I'm probably the most liberal person they know. However, like just for the good of mankind, this is not even a thing where I want to win a political argument. This is, this is something that erodes the actual foundation of small D democracy. And it erodes like the actual foundation of civil society. Society is a thin veneer. It's everyone agreeing on a shared reality where we say, where's the list of rules? Okay. We're all going to mostly, we're going to follow these rules. Yeah. We're not going to be jerks. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to steal your stuff. Right. Like all of that. But all society is, is everyone agreeing yeah, I'm not so going to be cool. I'm not going to throw a brick at your head when you step outside your door. Right. Yeah. Like it's just essentially right. everyone looks around and it's like, OK, we're going to be cool today. Yeah. That's how human society works. And it falls apart quickly. <laughs> like historically, it, it falls apart very, very quickly. And it has more times than it has not. Yeah. And, and you know, when I think about people going home at Thanksgiving and, and talking to their families and getting in political arguments and sort of putting on the armor for that battle, yeah. there's a guy um, who, like some of the some of the research. Uh, there's a guy named Samuel Woolley, uh, and he's a professor at, at UT Austin. He was just on Think with Chris Boyd last week, and um, he wrote a book called The Reality Game. And essentially, it tracks with a lot of the work that I've done in terms of thinking about. Uh, he really focuses on technological disinformation and computational propaganda. I sort of couch my stuff a little bit more in cognitive bias, but they're definitely parked in the same garage. He said that in his research that he has done now, like for 10 years, so he's got several years on me. The number one thing that combats disinformation that can help someone get out of a reality bending uh, sphere where everything is warped and they can't understand objective reality is conversations with loved ones. Hmm. Yeah. Like the single most effective thing. Engagement with people you care with and trust. people you trust, and, yeah, right? Yeah, because yeah. that overrides a lot of the other cognitive biases. Yeah. I would 100% agree with that because some of the folks that I disagree with probably most that are dear friends of mine i've found that if i discuss like what's happening in front of us personally like where where do you like where are you coming from personally you know and if you're doing something stupid i'm going to tell you you're doing something stupid out of love you know sure then it matters and it hits and it's like oh we're well, gonna have a good conversation about this and there's a trust and a rapport there because i because i trust that you are coming from a place of good faith exactly but on the internet uh, there's no if if I see a comment, I'm like, <laughs> or, yeah, right. right. And, a, and a lot of yeah, political right. communication, 
Mm -hmm. uh, is both generated and received by people who understand that it originates from a place of bad faith. Mm -hmm. Oh, 100%. But it's team identification, right? So there is a way to combat this information. Full stop from the beginning, I don't think you should be able to lie on the internet. Now, boy, that goes against a lot of First Amendment shit. It goes against uh, which all of which is very dearly held and like really matters. And I understand that it's much more complicated than I don't think you should be able to lie on Hmm. the Internet. But if you, you know, that is a complicated and provocative statement. It seems simple, though. Right. But if you unpack it, like you said, it's like it goes against absolutely gets real weird, real, real quick. Yeah. But we we become 1984 pretty quickly or something, something along those. It can can easily be manipulated. Yeah. But either all of this matters or none of it does. Mm -hmm. Either truth matters or it doesn't. So, you know, there are laws in advertising where you can't say, hey, if you drink this particular box wine, if you drink boxy box wine, you'll live forever. Yeah. (laughs) Someone will take you to court. And we'll sue you and you will have to pay money and you will get in trouble <laughs> for doing that. There's not like an advertising license that someone comes and steals from you. Yeah. But you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. Right. That at the very basis of everything. Well, you can fluff, but you can't lie. You can't outright yeah. intentionally deceive someone. Yeah. So, you know, we started from that and then worked all the way back to like, let's be legit and on the real all the time. When you think about political campaigns, when you think about governments when you think about uh you know anyone that's communicating in the interest of the public good you know especially from the standpoint of campaigns like should there be uh, a law that says you can't lie or can we can we at least go to the platforms and say you have some sort of responsibility facebook yeah uh, i know you don't want to be an arbiter of truth i know you don't want to be in the tr- in the in the game of calling balls and strikes but you created the single most popular, the single most powerful advertising platform in the history of man. Yeah. Right. You have a two and a half billion users. You have some sort of institutional responsibility to not let lies and disinformation, which could actually really hurt someone flourish yeah. on this platform. Yeah, right? yeah. So that's a place where you could end up. And those are all longer conversations we have to have in terms of what swash labs can do and like how we like how it plays into the truman project like i i went to go i was interested in and wanted to be a part of the truman project because they're an organization that starts from the standpoint of uh we're uh political professionals we're uh military veterans uh we're policy professionals and we are interested in promoting a uh worldview and a defense policy and a national security policy that's based around human rights. You know, like if we're going to be America and we're going to have the power that we have and we're going to make foreign policy decisions, human rights should be the first step in making those decisions. And didn't it come from the the power that we have through our nuclear uh, arms, right? Well, or was right. that kind of a it's, part of it? It's sort of couched in the... Uh, like we're the ultimate power holder in the world. Right. So you have a responsibility. Right. Right. To Let's use our power for good and evil. Use your power for good, not evil. And that uh, that reaches into a lot of places. It's a, it's, a, it's a gross oversimplification, but it is the, like, can we operate in the world as, the as you know, up until recently the world's last superpower, uh, and certainly the world's military superpower, uh, from a place of human rights yeah. from a place of like 
promoting democracy, but not uh, shoving it on people in a way that impugns anyone's sovereignty. You know, like it's it's a it is a fundamentally, I suppose, liberal worldview, a progressive worldview of how can we project power responsibly uh, in the world. Um, you know, Bill Clinton used to say it's not about uh, the uh, we shouldn't lead with the example of our power, but by the power of our example, hmm. which say what you will about Bill Clinton. That's a good line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it describes a place where if you are the best and we truly believe in this idea of American exceptionalism and like, you know, we're the best and we deserve to be the best and our ideas are the best. If you really think that you have a responsibility to operate with care. Yeah. And to operate for the good of all mankind. Yeah. So um, I wanted to go and be a part of that organization because when I think about national security and then and now and in the next 10 years, it is absolutely going to be shaped by computational propaganda and disinformation. Um, we are absolutely losing uh, the battle uh, on AI. We're losing the battle on 5G in terms of just how things are being developed and and uh, what our position in the world is going to be. We lag behind an unimaginable number of countries in terms of like uh, broadband availability and internet speeds and just basic like real building blocks, like mechanics stuff about how could America still operate in a way where, you know, we can we can be the best and and help the world move in a direction that we sure would like to see it move. Yeah. We're behind. And healthcare. I mean, geez. Don't even get me started. Don't I mean, start. and, yeah, yeah. you know, people, I, I see this on the news a lot where people are, and this is kind of a, a departure, but I think uh, it's it's been sticking with me for quite a bit. Um, you know, like, again, Bernie is doing really well in the in the primary. And, and there's a lot of people that are on both sides that are like, how is socialism, which he's not really a socialist, but, you know, how are these socialist ideas now becoming uh, like being, the library? Yeah. <laughs> even being tolerated. Like, we don't understand it. And really, man, the, the honest answer is the world is on fire and people can't afford insulin. If you want to know why these ideas suddenly yeah. don't seem radical or to go to the doctor. Yeah. Like for the flu. Or, right. Yeah. It's outrageously expensive on top of the insurance that doesn't cover anything right yeah so like how is this or how are we the best in the world if we can't if we're like well and the and the truth (laughs) is that we're not yeah you know if you take a real view of foreign policy uh operating from a standpoint of how much good can we do and can we operate from a standpoint of human rights and boy do we get mad you know certainly we absolutely should get mad that russia tried to interfere in our elections right and if you believe the intelligence community. Yeah. <laughs> they absolutely did and they still are, right? Uh, and we should be mad about that. But America's foreign policy history is we <laughs> yeah. do that all the time. What was that book that uh man, I read it a couple of years ago and I posted about it and you were like this was required reading uh something of ashes. It was like the story of the legacy C- of legacy ashes. of ashes. The story of the CIA. Oh man, that blew my brain apart cuz it's like everything we're complaining about. Yeah. We created. Well, right. We have <laughs> the power of our example. Oh, yeah. Right. Exactly. Let's use it for good, not evil. So if yeah. you if people wonder how we got to this point in American politics, it, yes, there's a lot of polarization. Yes, there's a lot of computational propaganda, but also like, you know, people can't afford to go to the doctor. Yeah. And it's a it's a big deal. So all the way back to Swash Labs, like now I can't. I can't go to Facebook as just me and say, hey, I've bought, you know, seven figures worth of ads over 10 years 
uh, on your platform, which is like nothing at all. Right. They're like, who are you? Yeah. Who the hell are you? Uh, I can't say, hey, you guys should be more responsible. You know, Zuckerberg went before the house and didn't didn't answer anything and never did anything. It's amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So what can we do now? And what we've been focused on, you know, like before the 2016 election, we spent two years like redesigning our whole product and our whole reporting process. Like you come to Colabs now, where it's just like sort of the monthly meeting where you get a breakdown of how things are going and all that sort of stuff. We designed that whole process around cognitive bias. Because when we get somebody in a room, we're giving them a lot of information. Yeah. And oh, that makes sense. And and we're also asking them to make emotional decisions about money. Yeah. So how can we present that information, both in terms of progress and what we're doing, uh, but also in terms of how your money is being spent and what effect it's having, so that you can make the best decision possible in a way where you can properly adjudicate risk and reward and and the probability and stuff like that, right? That's all cooked into how we do that stuff. Then we started like really thinking about, all right, we've made an argument for a long time that you can't lie. You've got to tell a true story. You've got to be accessible. Um, you've got to be accountable. And in building an audience, like all of that stuff plays into how you target, how you spend your money, uh, how you bring people in and how you engage with them once you have them as a brand, as a nonprofit, whatever it is. That's kind of the right way to do it. But we really need to supercharge that and really hook it to the value of truth so that we can help our clients build resilient audiences. Real. Real. Yeah. Resilient audiences. Not bots. And that came out of the idea of, you know, if we're working with a campaign and we get to the end of the election and the outcome of that election is unclear, what is the plan for that? How would it be unclear, though? Well, I offer Stacey Abrams in Georgia as an example of that. That election was stolen from her. She, through official voter suppression, through shutting down polling places, and through then what followed uh, a super extensive media campaign by her opponent, who is currently the sitting governor of Georgia, um, who was the secretary of state of Georgia and was responsible for adjudicating that election. Oh, wow. That election 100% was stolen. Wow. I love Stacey Abrams. That campaign was... They may have been prepared for the possibility of fighting that fight after the election because it was close enough that they could be called into question. Um, she got no institutional support. How do you fight it as it's happening, though? If you're stuck to the truth and the other people aren't playing that game. You have to have a resilient audience that is willing to believe you and is willing to advocate for you in a public space. Because the one thing the bad guys figured out how to do is uh, tweak algorithms and push a narrative. But it's a it's a lot harder to fight for the truth than it is for a lie. Like Winston Churchill, a lie will make it halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on. That's true. So how do you fight that? I mean, what? You just have to do it. <laughs> you just have to do it. I mean, you talk about like building. I guess what you're saying is like you've got to build your audience of truth tellers up to the point that they will actually get out there and fight. Right. You know, traditional political communication thinks about thinks in terms of acquisition and persuasion. Right. And in traditional TV point terms of I'm going to make a TV buy based on polling, I'm going to in acquisition, I'm going to get people uh, interested in voting for me. And then persuasion, like I'm going to go and they're going to get out the vote or they're going to donate or they're going to volunteer. They're going to do stuff I want them to do. Right. This is not radically different from that traditional idea. Um, But you have to start it way earlier. You know, like a lot of a lot of political campaigns and businesses 
uh, still think of digital communications as an extra. Like, oh, if I have a couple extra thousand dollars, I'll dump it into this right before an event I'm going to have or right before a product launch or right before an election. Yeah, it's too right? late. You should have been building it. It's for, too late. Yeah. And, you know, uh, like Beto O'Rourke is a good example of this. He lost. Full stop. He lost. Um, however, he ran what is the closest thing to a perfect digital campaign that I have as yet seen because he started very early. He told stories. He was super accessible. He did a lot of those live Facebook events. And he did a lot of the live talk. Facebook. So there was, I love that stuff. There was, was there was an accessibility that was built into that. Yeah. But he also, early on, he was communicating his vision for what he wanted to do and what he thought things, how he thought things should be. He was really candid and open, but also he wasn't constantly and only yelling at you to do stuff for him. It wasn't just you got to donate, you got to volunteer. Right. And right, when yeah. when political when huh. digital communications get packed in towards the end of a race, it's always because political campaigns. We need this. We need that. Political yeah, campaigns have three limited this. resources: yeah. people, money, and time. Yeah. They can't create more time, so they're always yelling at you for people and uh, and resources. Right? Yeah, and it makes it more genuine if someone's not just constantly on the ask. Right, because you've had the opportunity to learn something about them, and it's information that's useful to them. So when you know, for years when we've talked to people about the kind of information, I mean, hell, I probably had this conversation with you about the kind of articles you share, about the kind of posts you put up. Like, you should come from a place of is this useful. Is right. this valuable to the audience that I'm trying to build so that I become a trusted source so that they don't tune me out so that, you know, based on my expertise or my lane, I'm telling them a story that's useful and valuable to them so that later when you're like subscribe to my podcast or send me referrals or whatever it is, that's one part of a rich tapestry of communication that you're engaged in with them. Right. That's right. All of this is the basics of how this should all work. Anyways, this is how people should have been doing political communication all along. This is what we would pitch for everything up to federal campaigns. This is how you should do this. You should start early. You don't have to spend a ton of money constantly, uh, but you have to spend money constantly. It's got to be a, an important prioritized part of your budget the whole time. And yes, when you get deeper into the campaign, uh, especially in political campaigns, you're going to have to spend less money on TV and more on digital because, you know, let's say you're a Democratic candidate and you're going to get outraised four to one and you're going to raise two million dollars and your opponent is going to raise eight. If you dump 90 percent of that into TV, you are only going to be able to partially compete for one week where that guy is going to be on TV for two months. And you're only going to run at a one to six or one to eight ratio. Uh, so for every eight of their ads that get run in the market where you're trying to buy in Texas, where it's super expensive, um, you're going to get whipped. Yeah. However, if you don't run at all on TV and you get at people where they are because they're not watching ads, their DVR, they're skipping like they, I have all of these super rational, logical arguments to say it's not worth doing. Don't do that. Spend that money on something where you're going to get an email address. You're going to get somebody in your audience. You're going to be able to tell them a story and you're going to be able to ask them to do something when you really need them to do it. People didn't really get that before 2016. And then the apocalypse happened. <laughs> and now all of a sudden everyone is like, maybe we should do that. So yeah. when we talk to our corporate clients, it really genuinely is about this is the same thing. And I'm not saying that you are going to be uh, embroiled in a disinformation campaign someday, 
but there's literally no downside to doing this this way because it's the right way to do it anyways. Yeah. And then you have a responsive, engaged, resilient audience so that if you have a PR crisis that you have to deal with, if you need to tell a complicated story on the way to accountability, which is what I hope all of our clients and brands would would do, then you have an audience that trusts you and is going to take you as operating from a place of good faith. Right. To, to me, kind of what I'm hearing is like, you've got to start by building the foundation of your, the, the house of your business on truth. You've got to base it on, and you've got to, you got to set the foundation early Yeah. and build on top of that. Yes. And we almost have to get to a point where like we recognize people that have built their reputation and their foundation on fabrications. Yeah. And we recognize that as like, okay, they're fake. They're not real. And we don't trust them. If we can't trust them in the little things that they've lied about, we can't trust, you know, almost like in the real world. Well, right. Everybody at the chamber mixer that goes every time knows the guy that's always on the make. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that is not really having a genuine conversation with you. Yeah. And is just hustling. The desperation of the, here's yeah. my card. Yeah. yeah. The sweaty, the sweaty me market <laughs> element. Of it. Me. And yeah. like, certainly like I would never, I'm no, I've never criticized someone for the hustle because God, am I on the hustle forever yeah. you know because you have to be when you when you own a small business but there's a difference between that and in and in having a real relationship that is candid about like yes uh i need business and boy i would like it if you could send me some business but also how's your wife <laughs> yeah you know like here's a thing that happened with my kid that i thought was interesting and yeah. did you hear about this thing that's happening it doesn't take a lot this is the thing like the actual cost for doing it right from the beginning the actual cost of ownership of that brand storytelling experience, I think is much lower than uh, doing it wrong and having to fix it later. Yeah. But you're talking about bringing things like into the real life, into the personable, into the, the, the one-on-one -on -one space as a way of fixing the virtual space almost right you know yeah. and you know not every business needs to let someone in on like the intimate inner life of the ceo but i think that being real and being accessible as a brand so long as you are telling the truth about what you do <clears throat> also works just as well hmm. i don't have to have a personal relationship with uh with uh tj's pizza wings and things right <laughs> <laughs> but the relationship I have with them is that it's super reliable. It's super consistent. I've been eating the same pizza from there since I was in college. My kid loves it. Right. And if I engage with them on the internet and like, I ask a pizza related question, I get an answer, right? Like it's a simple thing, but they are not overtly gaming the system to try and trick me into thinking that they are the best or possibly only pizza that's available. Yeah. Which is fine and good, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the brand identity is more important in the 21st century than it has ever been. Brand reputation is more important than it has ever been. Yeah. And it circulates from the place of this brand, this product does what it says it, it does. Yeah. So have you thought about this in a historical uh, perspective as far as like, the last time this happened was when Gutenberg started printing Bibles on his little printing machine. I actually saw the most nuclear take yesterday, which is that the only way <laughs> to fully insulate yourself from communist propaganda is to be illiterate. 
and now I am yeah, immune to most takes <laughs> on the internet. Only wow. the most nuclear takes yeah. are, will affect me. <laughs> <laughs> but like if you look back on on uh that and that was that's where mass communication officially you know started was hey we got we got a mechanical way of printing the 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 language now well then it was immediately uh siloed by the landed gentry yeah and we had hundreds of years of religious wars yeah is that are we facing some sort of uh purge of ideas or like, I, I mean, because we're getting tribal in that sort of way. I mean, if you really roll it back to like, okay, when was the last time this happened? A lot of people say TV happening, but I'm like, eh, I don't know. I actually roll it back a little further than that. I think it's I think it's really hard to pin direct um, comparisons to any phase of mass media because the world is so different every time it happens. Yeah. And because yeah, the media that. itself evolves so quickly, you know, because... Yes, following Gutenberg, we had, uh, you know, the the landed gentry and, you know, uh, a real escalation and and uh, uh, a real renaissance for class war. Um, but, you know, uh, at the same time, if you if you look at um, how useful that was in terms of, you know, the American Revolution, like pamphlets. Totally. Yeah. The the OG blogs like yeah. drove a lot of revolutionary thinking. Yeah. And all and always have. I mean, the thing that keeps me up at night is little thought experiments. Like what if Stalin had had Twitter? <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Cause. Oh man. I think that, and, and even that is too cute by half because it doesn't map directly. It's not quite the same thing, but if you really <laughs> think about the power of, and I think about it top down, I think about the power of propaganda versus um, what the masses will do with a good or a bad idea. Yeah. Um, and that's probably the internet utopian in me that still thinks like, wow, there's still a chance for this to be a good thing. <laughs> still might be good. Still might be good. But, um, you know, in the hands of people that only view it as a hammer, the out, the possibility for good outcomes is not great. Yeah. Um, I think that you have to start from, and this, you know, once again, when we started Swash, we were having conversations with people about stuff that was not super broad knowledge, and there's a cost for being first through the door, and there's a cost for uh, trying to get people to understand that they need something that they don't know that they need yet, right? Um, and now I have to, like, put on the Grim Reaper robe and be like, listen, the apocalypse already happened, and now you have to live in this environment as it really is. Yeah. Not in as you wish it were. You know, you want to you want to see someone that owns a small business get a real visceral understanding of how the world works now. Uh, watch them catch like 10 bad Yelp reviews in a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> Yelp. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, like my life is over. And, you know, Yelp as a platform uh, is terrible, but they have the kind of uh reach that can disproportionately really affect the life of a business. Yeah, they're part of the equation now. For right. Sure. Yeah. So living in the world as it really exists, understanding how to build resilient audiences, um, understanding how to tell your story, uh, good, bad, or indifferent from the standpoint of of being a brand, like all of that is super important now. So now the next 10 years is like, you know, now we offer digital risk training. We offer uh, for everything from 
don't make it easy to get hacked or or lose information um, by never changing your password or whatever it is, like real basic digital ops, because a lot of small businesses, they'll get Norton and then they're like, I'm good. Yeah. And they don't think about all of the threat vectors that that chart a path on the way into their business. Um, where their information could get compromised. It could be super expensive for them. It can cause real problems. What's your website? My website? Yep. Swashlabs.com. Awesome. Yeah. And that's also like where you can find rogue metrics. That's the other thing we're kind of talking about. Let's well, explain like what that is. Rogue metrics is a specific sort of uh, entity that's dedicated to just special problems when it comes to digital risk. So it's a great read. Like every time you post, it's like a great. Thoughtful and I, article. Yeah. And I haven't written much lately, but I did go through a series there where I was sort of trying to track and break down here is what's happening in terms of disinformation and computational propaganda and kind of what the landscape looks like. Um, and then through that uh, entity, like I get to do uh, some special projects with my friends where we do things like, uh, you know, hey, uh, these uh, this white nationalist group uh, ginned up a, a big harassment campaign against somebody. Did you guys How ever look at uh, Greg Abbott responding to the, uh, what was it, the invasion of Texas? Jade Helm. Jade Helm. Uh, I <laughs> actually, <laughs> I wrote a piece for uh, Texas Tribune's opinion. That fascinates uh, me. Thing about, <laughs> about the crisis of belief yeah. and about how when disinformation comes from official sources for, the, for political purposes, you know, and like Greg Abbott is not stupid. He knows the United States military, military was not invading Texas. Yeah. But it was an opportunity for him to throw some red meat to the base and get people ginned up and like mad at Obama and mad at the federal government and like him and do whatever, you know. But what that does is it it creates, again, a reality warping field where someday there's going to be a real emergency, like, say, I don't know, a global pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) And your uh, sources of official information about how to govern yourselves. And then the media apathetic people are like, I don't know if I can actually believe the that information right maybe i shouldn't wash my hands who cares the crisis (laughs) of belief is people play politics with the actual functions of their job as working in government when ideally they wouldn't tell lies about hey i think obama is invading texas yeah so that when a real thing happens like a flood or when say somebody engages in a weeks-long mail bombing campaign in austin uh, which really happened. Oh yeah. You I know, forgot about that. And then the levers of being able to talk competently about public response and public safety from these people that are so used to politicizing things real and fake yeah. is seriously damaged. Yeah. And that's a huge problem. And the people who call everything fake have way too much leverage right now. Yeah. That's the scary thing about it. Well, and it's, and it's, and it's because anything that doesn't uh, fit with their team narrative. Yeah. is fake. Yeah. And we're living in the matrix. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's awesome. So what's kind of the future for, uh, I mean, you're going to continue on the path of, uh, telling the truth. Yeah. I marketing, I think that narrative storytelling, all that stuff. There's an opportunity for, uh, advertising just like other kinds of creative pursuits. Uh, to be a force for good in the world. Yeah. And that sounds real goofy. And I understand that that is not most people's experience with advertising, but I think it's true. Um, I think that advertising can contribute meaningfully to the cultural conversation. I think that advertising can contribute meaningfully to uh, the creative conversation. And I think that um, 
everyone has a notable example of an ad that they thought was really good or really clever uh, that contributed just the same way that they might, you know, think a song or a movie is really clever. So our goal always is to tell good stories on behalf of good clients who uh, the world is better off for them being in in the world, right? Like a number one, can we do world-class work for small businesses and nonprofits uh, and tell their stories to people that need to know about them? That's the, the, you want to talk about core values, like that's what we do. That's what we try to do. The way the world is now, that now means that we need to think in terms of the truth is more important than ever. How do we build brands that are resilient to this sort of weird Mad Max informational landscape um, where people will weaponize information? It is a it is an interesting and weird challenge. Uh, it is certainly not the easiest thing I could be selling right now, but I think it is what we ought to be selling right now. And I think that we have a staff that makes it we we have we have you know people that work at Splash Labs work there for a long time, and we are extremely good at what we do. And that's not to say that uh, I don't mean in terms of competition because I don't think that we have any competition because we do things in a, in in just a very different way. Like we don't we don't just like you don't come in like buying advertising off the shelf and like here is your advertising right. Yeah. It's very holistic is it, right. the best it, way to put it. Yeah. And, it, and that's but you a know, great experience. Okay. You, so if that's been your team. lived yeah. experience. That's, that's what I, that's what I hope to hear. Yeah. Um, that makes it possible for us to wrestle, I think with big philosophical questions. Uh, and it's, you know, maybe it seems silly for a company that has 11 people, uh, <laughs> you know, that is, that exists in a small town to think about it in terms of that way. But that's what I want to do. And when I think about, you know, I'm 40 years old now, I'm almost 41. Uh, I've tried to spend my life telling stories. Uh, and I have for the last 20 years, I have sort of constantly expecting, I've sort of constantly been expecting to die because I got a a melanoma (laughs) diagnosis when I was 19. Oh, wow. And last year I had two of them. Oh, wow. And I had to have them cut off. So like the last one is this one on my arm. Oh, man, that's brutal. And I see this every day. Yeah. And I don't want to get all like cosmic nihilist like, but, you know, there's a there's an old thing that's a memento mori. Yeah. Right. Remember, you will die. Yeah. In all the ways that count, Swash Labs is a good company. Yeah. And I feel like we do good work there. Um, and when I think about things in terms of, uh, you know, someday, someday you're going to die. What do you want to have spent your time doing? Yeah. What I want to have spent my time doing is, you know, I like helping people make their dreams come true. I like good people that have uh, that that run good businesses that really believe in what they're doing. Like I want to help. And I think that through the work that we do and the way we do the work at Swash Labs, we can meaningfully contribute to uh, be a light in the dark and fight against um, what is becoming a real serious era of disinformation. And either, you know, maybe by the power of our example or through things we write or work that we do, we can make the case for the truth. Yeah. No, and I share a lot of those values, and I think that's why it's been so – it's been great to work with you guys. Again, you got such a great team. 
I've been, you know, in front of straight shooters the entire time. And it's like, oh, we're actually doing, we're doing good in the world by actually doing this. We're, we're a force for good, not evil, you know? Right. And it's weird to say like, just by being good, just by being honest and candid about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Yeah. That that can be some sort of a force for good in the world. Yeah. Uh, Cause it would seem like that's the, what your baseline ought to be. <laughs> it would seem it would seem well previously it's like that's that's what we all assumed and then right then but we got n- here. now where yeah. we are like that's that's where we have to start from it's funny how fast that disintegrates yeah who, who would have thought that we'd be like oh no telling the truth is good we need to remember that people yeah it's very it's very weird to me to say yeah. uh let's all remember that it's worthwhile uh to tell the truth yeah we're living it right now yeah it's awesome That's awesome. Yeah. What have we, uh, what have we not talked about? The debates. How do you feel about the debates? Oh, <laughs> Did you watch it? I kind of can't tune in. This is my take on it. I, t- <laughs> as he goes for the bota box, yeah. fill that up to the top. No, no. Okay. So, but like, I can't tune in because I'm like, what a ridiculous way of picking a candidate. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's like, not a, it's I think not, it's completely ridiculous. Like, it's not a great way to pick a candidate. Here's your 30 seconds to explain everything you've ever done in your whole life and your opinion on uh, whatever. Yeah. Well, in every I debate you, you watch, the there's, like, there's, all, there's always a chunk of something really important that they don't cover. Yeah. Right. Like there's been whole debates where they haven't had a single question about the climate. There's been whole debates where they haven't had a single question about gun safety. There's been whole debates where they haven't had a single question about, uh, you know, reproductive rights. Like, there are things that maybe they assume everyone's on the same page on that stuff though because it's like the left you know but i mean if you look at the debates can you reasonably assume that no no (laughs) No, right or from people's like websites you can't reasonably i mean people have nuanced opinions i mean if you think about and i I, like i care i care less about like what are you going to do as to like how are you going to do it and that seems to be a question that nobody asks is like how are you going to deal with like the legislature and get done what you're going to well, do. Like, right. how, how are you going to be a, a democratic president and accomplish like what you see is like the direction we need to go? No matter what side you're on, it's extremely reasonable to say if you are elected as president and you, and we keep the house, the Democrats keep the house, but we don't win the Senate. How are you going to get anything done? And the answer, and maybe they don't ask this question because the answer is fundamentally boring is I won't. Yeah. Right. They're going to stonewall. They're going to, they're going to stop everything. Right. Um, which that doesn't make for good viewing, I guess it doesn't make for good ratings. And, and I'll, but that's kind of my point. Like, isn't like the whole, the whole TV thing, the uh, like TV is a dying. Well, it's goofy, but I mean, it's goofy. There's a lot of things about the way that we elect people in this country that are dumb. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I will say this. Um, I watched the debate last night. I did not want to watch it, but then I <laughs> I can't help myself. Um, and there were two things that I noticed. Uh, one is that, you know, Elizabeth Warren would be best served by trying to beat the living hell out of Bernie Sanders at every opportunity. Right. Because he's the front runner. She's trying to make space for herself. Yeah. Instead, she has taken Mike Bloomberg to the cleaners. Hmm. Over and over and over and over again, which is fun to watch. That's good it is super fun to watch because I do not like Mike Bloomberg at all. Man, he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. And he is engaging in 
all kinds of digital behavior that I find really offensive. Uh, the, the, what was that? Uh, the big gay ice cream thing. That was said. super weird. He just he put out an ad that <laughs> was just complete disinformation where he edited video <laughs> and showed people like, you know, and it was just super dumb. And he also is paying people and has automated bots that are responding to things on Twitter. And it's like, I don't like any of it. So I am in the tank for Elizabeth Warren beating the hell out of Mike Bloomberg. Great. However, you know, politically, tactically, does that make the most sense? It probably doesn't unless you think about, okay, so maybe Elizabeth Warren understands or thinks that most of her policies really align with Bernie Sanders. And they're mostly on the same page because you were talking about being on the same page. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if it's not if she's not the nominee, then he would be her second choice. Right. Like it, and that is sort of like a level of earnestness from her that uh, you sort of like there's a level of earnestness uh, on the Democratic side that I think you don't always see on the Republican side, because some of these people are like true believers and not everything is a, is a stone cold calculation. Yeah. So like, that's one thing that I noticed last night that occurred to me. It's not, I'm not passing judgment on it. I'm just like, that's interesting. If she was making a cold political calculation here, she would be trying to beat the hell out of Bernie Sanders. She's not. She instead, she was like, this asshole is not one of us. And please don't be fooled by his shit. Right. Like that's where she was going with that. (laughs) Secondly, there was a question towards the end of the debate. It was, I think it was the last question. And, in in a debate that was full of terrible questions that was in there was just a lot of yelling and it like it wasn't great and it was dumb and yeah i'm gonna raise my hand so i no one like i wasn't really super pumped about the whole thing at all and i suffered through it but the last question was what do you think is something what's the biggest misconception about you oh that's one of my favorite debate questions right yeah and uh what's your motto Kevin has asked that before at a city council debate. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, it's have have you been misconstrued and, and, you know, in Mm -hmm. the field of, of, uh, of primary candidates, like Bernie's not my guy, but, uh, I thought his answer was terrific. And his answer to what's the biggest misconception about you was that my ideas are radical. (laughs) Yeah. And then he went into it and he yeah, was like, it is like, not radical. This is what FDR say that, was trying to do. Right. Yeah. It's not radical for to to say that everyone should have health care and that it's a human right when people are rationing their insulin and dying. Yeah. For a product that costs, you know, a dollar to make. That's a damn good answer. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Right. Like it was a really good answer. Um, Elizabeth Warren had a really good answer. Uh, Pete Buttigieg had a really good answer. It was an opportunity instead of being like, give me your stump speech. I'm going to make you think on your feet for a second and you get this little like revelatory window into like them being candid about themselves. Yeah. That's what you, that's what you kind of hope for. Right. So that those moments for me were like, you know, that was the most impressive thing to me throughout that whole debate. I thought the last debate, um, which was the one where Elizabeth Warren opened just with a howitzer on Mike Bloomberg in the first 90 seconds, (laughs) she had not done that before. Yeah. Right. Which is another thing that sticks out to me because really she was showing up to the debates and she was like, I did my homework. I have a plan. I'm a, you know, I am well studied and professional and I really believe in all this stuff and it didn't perform super well. But is she using that as a way to demonstrate she can be on the attack and be vicious? I, you know, I think there's, there's probably some political calculation and this is all just broad conjecture and I'm yeah, doing we're, like we're armchair punditry right. yeah, yeah. now, which 
Uh, normally I detest, but it's it's kind of fun to do it in this super low stakes. Like no one's going to get mad at me about this environment. No one listens. I got no, like yeah. ten listeners. Yeah. Um, this is a thing where it's like, yeah, I think there was a moment where she saw an opportunity to. Uh, really come out hard against someone that she really finds personally odious, which I agree with. Um, but also it was an opportunity for her to say, do you want to see what it would be like in a debate between me and Donald Trump? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Against another yeah, yeah, arrogant yeah. billionaire. Yeah. This can be fun. <laughs> here is what, here's the ABCs of me, baby. Like this yeah, is what yeah, I'm yeah. going to be like. Good for ratings. Yeah. If yeah. I get there, <laughs> I'm going to gut this dude like a fish and watch him squirm. Yeah. Now, Mike Bloomberg uh, at least has some amount of self-awareness, which I don't think Donald Trump has. You think so? I don't know. You know, like he had that psychopath look on his face of like, I'm not going to react to this, but you could tell he was trying really hard not to react (laughs) to it. Right. Whereas remain a robot. Yeah. (laughs) This is what a human would do. Hello, fast food worker. I would like one food. I love that. Thank you. Gay ice cream. I love Subway. Please give me a Subway. You know, uh, I, this is, you know, him and Zuckerberg are sort of in the same category. Like I'm an Android and I don't have human emotions, but he kind of got mad, right? Like she got under his skin and he got, he got upset about it, but it took a long time. Whereas, you know, uh, the debate performances from 2016, which had no bearing on how the election turned out, like when you make Trump mad, he gets mad. Yeah. You know, he but but he has a genuine response, though. I think that's what people are drawn to is people like, do. Yeah. At least he's genuine in that moment of of uh, in that moment, like when he's like at his worst, it's like, well, he's real. He's being real. He's being real. And I suppose that's also true. So. Uh, the debates are necessary. They're ingrained uh, in American political culture. I wish there's a better way to do them, though. There's got to be a better way well, to do them. I at mean, this day and age with the Internet, someone who's very optimistic about the way the Internet is going to change the future of like how we consume information. You got to believe that there's a better way to do it than throw it up on TV. I mean, and honestly, see the tweets happen. The, honestly, I think the, the Reddit AMA has been really revelatory about a great number of public figures. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And Reddit has its own problems. But in that instance of <laughs> someone is responding to unvetted questions. Yeah. It puts them into spaces that they're not used to operating in. Right. And then you get a clearer picture of how they operate. But see, it kind of goes back to my original thought thing like when you take the gatekeeper out of the equation which is like the president speaking to everybody without you know the that being vetted like just speaking to the world through twitter i think that's a bad thing actually um but so is the reddit ama like you've got unvetted questions and it's like now you're getting pot shots it can turn south real quick well there's depending usually, on what army is deployed right and that, that absolutely is like they get tanked as well and there's absolutely there's usually some sort of representative of reddit that is that is running the ama and is sort of like picking like there's oh, a okay. little bit of a filter gotcha um, because that person, See, as long as there's a gatekeeper their- in there, I'm like that. That's the model that we're accustomed as humans yeah. to being a part of. Like, well, and that gets out of hand really quick too. And you know, the answer to what's better than the debate is, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't have a good answer for that. I think that in some democracies, debates are incredibly um, enlightening opportunities to talk about. Uh, really sort of uh, unique and well-articulated and well-considered policy positions. Yeah. That is not what happens in the United States. <laughs> yeah. 
I think maybe you get that sometimes uh, in a municipal race, depending on who is running the candidate forum or whatever right. it is. Or like one of my favorite podcasts is Intelligence Squared, where it's like an official, it's an actual, this is the statement everyone before they go in votes on if they agree, disagree, or don't know. There's the debate. There's like two or three people on each side, and then they vote again, and it's like, oh, these guys won. Okay, cool. And we don't have to fight a war. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, there's um, uh, Ronan Farrow has been in the news lately um, and well-deserved because he is an incredible journalist. Um, and he wrote a book about the State Department. Really? Because he was in the State Department. He was in the Foreign Service. Um, and he worked under Richard Holbrook. Oh, and yeah. And this was yeah. when... Um, I did not know this. What's a, do you remember the book? Uh, just look up Ronan Farrow State Department book. I can't remember the title. I'm sorry. I keep having you look things up. Um, that first book. Yeah, Is it, it was called State Department. No, um, but it's about the decline of American diplomacy. Oh, War on Peace. The War on Peace. Yeah. And you're talking about like having a conversation and not having to have a war over it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what we're trying to avoid here. There was sort of a golden age of American diplomacy. And this is in a vacuum and not considering all the bad shit the CIA did and all that sort of stuff. Um, when people in the foreign service and at the state department, it was well-funded. It was really understood the value of diplomacy and sort of what, what needed to happen and kind of the process that that always went through. And certainly it was flawed and certainly it had its problems, but there were experts and there were people who really cared. And there were people who worked hard and understood like how to negotiate anything between nations, which is that which shares a lot of real estate with any kind of negotiation you might engage with, but in some ways is radically different because of all the political and cultural considerations that you have to engage in. Um, and it's a really fascinating book about the decline of American diplomacy and like the, the lack of focus on it. And uh, I think uh, when Mattis was secretary of defense and, uh, they were, it was one of the first budgets in the Trump administration. And there were these huge cuts to the state department budget. Um, and they had public hearings about it and they asked Mattis, you know, just someone asked him like, what do you think about budget cuts to the state department? And he said, well, for every dollar that you take away from the state department, I have to go buy more bullets. Yeah, <laughs> man. And that guy's legit. That guy's been. Yeah. And right? I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, it, it, as the sitting secretary of defense, talking about. hearing that from a from a military man, you know, like you understand that oftentimes the, the military command puts a huge value on diplomacy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because like the bullets that you're spending are also bullets that aren't coming at Americans and like we're. We're paying in lives. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And, you know, another thing that doesn't show up in debates very often is questions about foreign policy. What did you find about him being even a part of the administration? Uh, hopeful or positive? Because, I mean, he, he had a really he, he's one of he's probably one of the most well-read war makers we're ever going to have. I mean, he knew. His book is fascinating. I don't know if you've read it, but it is. It's one I, of the best books I read last year. I haven't read his book, but I have talked so to people. Good. And I'm like, I don't want to engage in this hagiography of like, well, these were the adults that worked in the Trump administration and uh, they were 
saving us from the worst versions of everything and then and then they left <laughs> they're heroes know. for leaving no yeah <laughs> i don't know like about that. yeah all of it is a mess and say what you will about it um i do know that uh, people that work in the national security space um whether outside or inside government who had a very high opinion of him uh, and his ability to do the homework and understand the situation and really like he was a scholar of whatever it was he was doing and yeah. he had to do some really big complicated things. So when he says something like that, uh, I think people should take it seriously. Clearly no one is taking the state department seriously now, which I think is a huge mistake. Um, you know, if doing research on terrorism for five years taught me anything. It's that we forever are preparing and defending against the last attack. Hmm. And we're never thinking about how to prevent or offset the attack that will come 20 years from now. And if that is the mode in which you are thinking, then it opens up your worldview a great deal. You are proactive as opposed to reactive. Right. Uh, I'm not in the foreign service. I have never served in government. You know, like I am just a guy talking, but as a political scientist who has thought a lot about why things happen and why governments make the decisions they make and why terrorist organizations make the decisions they think and why uh, intelligence agencies in other countries make the decisions that they make in terms of who they decide to go after and why um, long term, there's no downside to long term thinking especially in terms of foreign policy. And there's a serious lack of it now. Yeah. So who are you going to vote for in the primary? Have you voted already? Uh, I have voted already. Uh, and I am happy to say that I'm going to vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is Very in the good. general election. I I want to I, I want to keep that close to the vest just because it is a big, messy, complicated uh, decision right now. The cornerstone of democracy is the sanctity of the voting booth. That's right. As they said in The Wire. (laughs) Season four. They also said in The Wire, did you just write down notes about our criminal fucking conspiracy? (laughs) Great show. Yeah. One of the best. It's a really excellent show. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, But yeah, I think that. uh, So things are going great is what I'm hearing. (laughs) I, you know, the last thing I wanted to do. You're pretty hopeful. I, you know, I am because here's the I thing. I take like, you as a cynic and you walk in and you're very, you're very optimistic. You know, I things. have been really bathed in bad people doing bad stuff with the internet for, for the last two years. Yeah. Um, last three years now, Jesus. Uh, but even your experience with like tracking like terrorism through the internet, I mean, you've seen bad things over a course, you know, you've been in the bad and the good. Yeah. And I think that. You've got a perspective. The place where I am landing on it is there is something we can do. Yeah. And that we should be doing it. 100%. Yeah. Uh, I, but if you could condense that down to like one person sitting across from you, headphones yeah. on with a microphone. Yeah. What would you tell a person to do day to day to pursue the good and not the evil? Like I'm at the point where I'm like, eh, I'll watch the documentary 10 years from now. Like what, what should a person do day to day to make the world a better place on the internet with their actions? So there's two sides to this. Uh, some of it is like operation security and defensive. And then some of it is like, 
uh, what you should put out into the world. Yeah, like basic things like don't share stupid articles that aren't real. Right. right. So the first part of that is like, it, it, you know, if you never listen to any other part of this podcast, uh, change your passwords, use a password vault. Uh, last pass. Last pass. Yeah. Don't check email on autopilot so you don't get fished. You like really be engaged while you're checking your email so you don't click on dumb stuff. Yeah, don't click on the thing. Right. From the And everybody knows not to do that, but then everybody does it, right? Yeah. And then on it's the like internet the story of this office. You know <laughs> don't uh don't share on, or people. retweet an article if you haven't read it. Yeah. It sounds silly to be like that that's a real thing, but that is a lot of how uh misinformation spreads which is different than disinformation because misinformation headline right that's accidentally spreading bad information as opposed to disinformation which is i'm doing it on purpose yeah um you'll see a headline that you agree with and i think about this all the time and i absolutely have done this within the last year oh i've totally done it yeah Yeah. shared a thing that wasn't real and then i'm like oh god and i go read it and i'm like i shouldn't have done it. or or i've shared something that i agreed with everything but i didn't know about this one company that like they were actually doing the opposite of what they said like i just didn't know the research on like that one company this happened like yesterday yeah yeah so read the article before you share it yeah um check the date (laughs) <laughs> yeah um if the other thing is like the there there are these uh they sound it sounds like the uh like the local newspaper the kalamazoo tribune i will absolutely <laughs> tell you and and this is not a thing that i am like saying to like try and instigate some sort of like russian panic or anything but foreign intelligence agencies uh as well as domestic bad actors very regularly will create twitter accounts and websites that are made to look like local news sources that will then sometimes for a period of years report basic local news and then and then will slip disinformation into it yep so if you go and you see an article that seems if you get the feeling of like hmm because people use the internet everyone kind of now operates from a slight place of distrust if something sets off your spidey sense uh, or your Peter Tingle, as it were, uh, <laughs> you know, um, check the author, check the outlet, the masthead. Yeah. You like, know, yeah. just if it's something you've never seen before, you know, everyone has their big hitters that they feel comfortable sharing an article from yeah, right? New York Times. Yeah. New York Times, more Washington less, Post, yeah, or, you know, if you are on the conservative side, you're going to share things from Washington Times or Fox News or whatever it is. Like those all have their their different problems. Or I'm talking about actually spreading truly like or you know the disinformation that yeah. can, Estonia Ukraine based. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. be wary of things that show up in in private Facebook groups from people you don't know. Yeah, check the source. Like, just if you can govern and be judicious and intentional about what you amplify. And I'm not asking you to change your fundamental political beliefs. I'm not asking you to yeah. suddenly distrust, uh, you know, a, a journalist that you have really come to really like or whatever it is. I'm just saying that before you amplify a piece of information, be thoughtful about it, understand where it comes from as best you can, and make sure that you've read the whole thing. Yeah. Before you send it out to your your social network. Yeah. Be careful because it actually matters. You may think it doesn't, it may feel like it doesn't matter because it's a, 
well, it's it, flippant and it's easy in the it, dark and I and you're typing well, on your yeah. keyboard. And we've built little little uh, silos for ourselves where we are friends with people that think the same things that we do. And yeah. then I will share uh, an article or I will make a tweet and then I will get clicks and likes on it. And then my brain will give me the good chemicals. Yeah. And then, <laughs> uh, you know, that's a thing that I want to repeat. Mm hmm. The you dopamine got, thing. Yeah, yeah, you've got to, you've got to be more judicious. You've got to be more thoughtful about what it is. Uh, there are plenty of things in politics uh, on the internet that I could uh, comment on or talk about at great length. Now, a lot of times, what I think about, I'm to like the next level of that, where I'm like, am I adding value? <laughs> yeah, to this yeah, yeah. by am I hoping or am, am I, I helping? Yeah. Right, yeah. You're like really, like it comes from the standpoint of does this help? Yeah, and if it's a thing about how disinformation is spreading or a new technique or something that's happening on a platform, you know, most people that are in my job that are the CEO and founder of a digital marketing company are out here on LinkedIn, like hashtag digital hashtag branding. Here's Gary V's latest understanding of why uh, TikTok is the place to grow your brand or whatever it is. And like nothing makes Isn't me no. more tired than that shit. No. <laughs> because <laughs> it because for me like none of that like it doesn't really matter like our whole approach with our clients is not like i'm going to make you the best at tiktok so you own the moment instead i'm like what's the best way we can tell your story yeah so that whatever platform is happening now whenever now is you can make good use of it yeah do you understand fundamental things about yourself so that you can articulate those in writing or in conversation yeah can we tell a true story about a thing you sell or a thing that you do? Because you're playing the long game. You're not playing the your boy, be, your boy JB star plays the long game because JB. everything changes so fast. You know, if you put all and it sounds like, you know, oh, I'm going to pull my eggs in one basket. But like, that's super real because there were brands that spent a lot of money on MySpace. <laughs> I know. <laughs> when, know when I was uh, I was uh, temping in New York. Yeah, I was the guy that understood MySpace, and that's how I got most of my jobs. Was like, I know how to do basic HTML and make whatever yeah. liquor company like pop up in people's bulletins. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, and those that went away almost overnight. Instantly. Yeah, overnight. Yeah, and, <laughs> and it would have been much more valuable for them to hire someone you know smart like you to yeah, be yeah. like, how do we tell a good story that Forever. can work on Friendster Regardless. or MySpace or Blogster Blogger or Zanga? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Because all of it translates, right? Yeah. Like if you know how to talk about yourself, if you know yourself, yeah. If you have overcome all of the friction that the world puts between you and understanding the truth about you and what you're doing. Yeah. Then no matter the platform, no matter the environment, you will be able to successfully bring someone in and tell them a compelling story about who you are and what you do and why. That's right. To thine own self be true. I don't or know. I don't know who said that. <laughs> That's awesome. Some British guy. Some British guy. So is there anything you've got coming up that you want to like talk about or promote or yeah, I'm going to be on a panel uh, at South by Southwest. Oh, yeah, South by. Um, still doing that. Still going to make it. Going to get signed. Good, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my band is not performing at South by. Um, what the hell is South by anymore? It's like people like you going up and it being is, on a panel. It is a lot of things about technology about? and entertainment and culture and uh, movies. Movies. There's TV a whole shows. film thing. There's an interactive thing. They have an educational festival now. Like, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but uh, Truman Project. 
uh can i be your roadie and get some passes uh i asked about this and no like (laughs) they are they're real they are strict about that they're strict about that i was was surprised as hell that i that i get a badge for being on the panel but i do (laughs) well it's either they pay you or they give you a badge right it's like they can manufacture value and give me a thing (laughs) um but yeah so truman project put together a panel of uh experts in a number of fields and the panel is on democracy in the era of disinformation so this is about everything from election security to the global commons to trade to uh i can't imagine we're not going to talk about the coronavirus oh uh, yeah you know oh my gosh about how, how do we not talk about that spread around that um my goodness th- and it's gonna and it's uh gonna be a fairly open-ended discussion about how disinformation and computational propaganda uh, affects essentially uh, a polity or a citizenry's ability to objectively understand reality. I mean, and the best part about it is like we get to live it in real time. There's no. Is there. that the is that the best part? Yes, about it? it is, Josh. I'm being. I've adopted your your optimism. <laughs> hey, well, at least you know, we get to see how it turns out. Here's the thing: if you make the decision <laughs> to live in the world as it really is, and you make the decision you know from a from a zen standpoint to i'm going to be present in this moment and fully experience the blessing of both uh the good and the bad i'm going to learn from this moment that i live in yeah you know on days when my existential dread gets unmanageable i have to think about things like okay like sure there's a real serious problem with the climate and people's ability to understand reality is degrading precipitously but you know in this moment if i can if i can shed all of that and i can be present in this moment with my daughter or i can just appreciate that like petting my cat is nice or i can appreciate that you and i uh have been able to have uh over what i just now am realizing has been several hours and didn't seem like that um a fairly nuanced (laughs) conversation about a, a broad range of topics yeah um all of that stuff is is good right so as you know, we live in a time now where uh, it's intense and there's a lot of things yeah. that you could focus on and be upset. But, you know, I saw a thing last night on Twitter and boy, rarely is there something from the hell site bird app that like makes you feel good. But yesterday, uh, Greta Thunberg and Malala got to meet each other. And they hung out. And, I saw that. And uh, Malala tweeted a photo of her and Greta, and the only caption, and there was like no hashtags, and it wasn't like a link to anything. All it said was uh, the only person I'd skip school for, hmm. which is like so well done and so nice. It's just like here are kids <laughs> who have who have faced or are facing or both really uh, like incredible difficulty. And they can still be optimistic about things. Yeah. Right. That's unreal. <laughs> In this day and age. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, as uh, you know, a 40 year old, like straight white guy from Texas, like uh, starting from there, I have plenty of advantages and blessings and privilege. Uh, so then I think it's incumbent upon me to try and put out into the world uh, an understanding that there is something we can do. And it's not. Uh, and. At the core of it is the question of, you know, is the truth worth fighting for? Either it all matters or it doesn't, right? Mm. And I can do something or I can do nothing. Yeah. 
and certainly there's other things I could do with my businesses that uh, would be easier. There's other things I could do uh, at Swash Labs that you know would probably be more profitable. Um, but I think that the way that we do things and the way that we're approaching it is worth doing. And that's why I do it. That's awesome. And that is a good place to put a pin in it until next time. Like we definitely have to get you on when the world really fall up, falls apart. I think that'd be a good time to have you back on. And <laughs> I would love to come back and talk to you, uh, in like the last week of October. Yeah. Let's get you on. <laughs> What is going to go on? Because we are now, you know, and I say that we're doing the work on disinformation and building resilient audiences. Now we're actually getting to do that work. Yeah. Like we've built it into Swash now and and now we actually have clients where that's kind of the main focus of what we're doing that's is awesome. actively combating disinformation. So um, I will have uh, a, a lot more like practical, real experience of starting from that operational point in terms of products, projects or engagements and saying yeah. we, th with this specific client, with this specific project, our goal is we are going to fight this information. How did it go? Yeah. Well, every single guest that I have on, I feel like I walk away with some sort of thing that I can take with me. And I definitely have adopted some of your optimism. Good. And I didn't think that's what I was going to, that's what I love about this is I never know what I'm going to take away. And I wouldn't have picked optimism is the thing I would walk away with. You know, the biggest misconception about me is that I'm a fatalist. Big Debbie Downer. Yeah, I'm a big Debbie cold, Downer. Cold death of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> however, however, that's not the case. That's awesome. Well, thank you for your time. This has been awesome. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks, man. There you have it. Another podcast in the bag. Episode 35. Josh, what a great conversation listening back what a relevant conversation couldn't have hit this one better as far as what's happening in the news man just crazy wash your hands stay safe thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time